Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Well, today the Dow broke its string of eight consecutive days of thousand point moves in one direction or the other. We actually finished with a slight gain today in the Dow, 188.27 points, not even 1%, so a pretty small move. Uh, The bigger move was in the smaller stocks, the most beaten down, Russell 2000. Uh, That index was up almost 7% on the day. Uh, But this, of course, follows yesterday's plunge. At one point, the Dow was off better than 2,000 points uh, yesterday, uh, but it ended up closing uh, down a little under 1,400. At the lows, the Dow Jones was below 19,000. The low got all the way down to 18,917, spot 4.6. That, I think, is about a 36% decline uh, thus far in this bear market. At the lows, the Russell 2000 was actually down by 44%. I read something today that uh, something like half the stocks are now down 50% off their highs or something like that. So this bear market is already very brutal. And, you know, it's really only gotten started. But if you really want to know the truth, the bear market has been going on for about 21 years. Now, how could you say that, right? 21 years, what do you mean? We were just at a record high. The Dow hit a record high in February. We were almost at 30,000. How could we be in a bear market? Well, if you want to measure the price of the Dow in terms of real money, which is something that we really should be uh, focused on now more than ever. In 1999, priced in gold, which is real money, the Dow was worth 42 ounces of gold. So it took you 42 ounces of gold to buy the Dow. You took the price of the Dow and divided by the price of gold. Well, yesterday morning, when the Dow was near its lows, the price of the Dow was less than 13 ounces of gold. Right now, with a slight rebound, uh, you're looking at about 13 and a half ounces of gold. In 2020, 
But in 2000 or 1999, you needed 42 ounces of gold to buy the Dow. So in terms of gold, the price of the Dow Jones has down, has fallen by 70% over 21 years. What do you call that? If that's not a bear market, what is it? A 70% decline in 21 years? Now, if you are pricing the Dow in terms of U.S. dollars, sure, it looks like the Dow has gone up. But what if the Dow is not going up? What if the dollar is going down? And so when you're measuring the uh, the Dow in, in dollars, you, you really are not measuring it properly. You're not really getting a good idea of what's really happening. But I think looking at the Dow Jones in terms of the price of gold is more important now than ever before, now that we're printing money like it's going out of style. You know, the last uh, balance sheet numbers came out this afternoon uh, from the most recent week, and the Federal Reserve reported a $356 billion increase in its balance sheet in the most recent week. The balance sheet now stands at a record high $4.668 trillion. So it is now higher than it was at its highest point before the Fed started to try to shrink it. In fact, if you look at the $356 billion increase in one week, that represents about four and a half months of QE3. When they were doing $80 billion a month, they did $356 billion in one week. And I'm sure when we get the numbers next week, the number is going to be over half a trillion dollars. I mean, who knows how much higher it's going to be. But you know what? It's just not going to stop. The balance sheet is going to keep on growing and growing and growing. So it's really important to start thinking about the Dow in terms of the price of gold, because that's going to be the only really way to get a handle on what's going on. And I think this 21-year-old bear market is going to continue for a long time. And what I've been saying all along is that when this bear market bottoms out, the Dow Jones will be worth about one ounce of gold. Now, people think, well, what? that's crazy. How's it going to be worth one ounce of gold? Well, if you look at the two most significant stock market bottoms that we've had, really, uh, following the longest bear markets, you had the 1932 uh, crash from 29, where the Dow was at about 20 ounces of gold at its peak, in 1929, and it bottomed out at about one ounce of gold in 1932. Then we had the Dow peaking in 1966 at about um, 20 ounces of gold, similar to the 1929 peak. And then it bottomed out in around 1980 at about one ounce of gold. Right, where the Dow and gold were about $800 each, $800 for gold and an 800 Dow. So I think the same thing could happen again. You know, and maybe it won't get all the way to one to one, maybe it'll get to two to one. It's hard to say, but I think one to one is a reasonable target given the amount of money that we're about to print and the fact that I think as an economy, Uh, The U.S. is in far worse shape than it was in the 1930s or the 1970s. So if we could go down to one ounce of gold back then, I see no reason to believe why we can't do that again.
Now, you know, it doesn't really matter where the two meet. What matters is that they meet. So they could meet with the Dow Jones going down. They could meet with the Dow Jones at 10,000 and gold at 10,000. Now, that's not that unrealistic. I mean, we already moved from 30,000 to 19,000. We're right at 20,000 now. Could we go back to 10,000? Sure, we could. I mean, we were at 10,000. We were below 10,000 at the bottom in 2008. Now, there are many stock markets around the world that have already retraced the entire rally since 2008. So they're back where they were when the Dow was under 10,000. So it's certainly not uh, outside the realm of possibility that the Dow Jones can go down to 10,000. And I think that in that environment, it's very possible that the price of gold moves from about 1,500. It's a little below that right now, but it moves from 1,500 to 10,000. You know, that's about what, a six, seven fold increase in the price of gold? I mean, that's not unrealistic. I mean, it made a bigger move in the 1970s when uh, gold went from $35 an ounce to 800. I mean, that's a far bigger move. Even if you go back to the original uh, rally that we had earlier this century, when gold went from 300 to 1900, that was about a six-fold increase. So the move that I am talking about to 10,000 is a very similar move to the move that we had from you know 2000 to 2011. So I think it's very easy to do that. I mean, clearly the amount of money that we're going to print in this decade is going to dwarf the amount of money that we printed in that decade. Uh, and so certainly gold can go to 10,000 in an environment where the Dow falls to 10,000 and that gets you at one to one. But, you know, it could happen with the Dow at 20,000 because the Fed creates so much inflation that the Dow doesn't really fall. But in that environment, the price of gold goes up to 20,000 also. They could meet there. Or it's possible that the Dow can go to 50,000 because we have hyperinflation, but gold goes to 50,000 too, right? And then they're, they're one to one. So I think the important thing is not where they meet. The important thing is that they do meet or they come close to meeting. And so that's how you can keep this thing in perspective. Now, a lot of people think, you know, well, why isn't the price of gold already soaring, right? Why is the price of silver down around $12 an ounce? I mean, if it's going to go way up, why isn't it already going way up? And again, you know, I think what's happening right now is more about a rush to liquidity among the bigger leverage investors around the world. Uh, you're having all kinds of problems in the credit markets and the bond markets. Uh, people are really squeezed for cash uh, because the economy is shutting down and businesses are shutting down. And so people are selling everything. I mean, they're not really thinking this through. You know, they're not trying to make decisions based on the long term. They're just trying to raise the cash that they need in the short run. So you're seeing a lot of selling pressure in metals in that market, but you're not seeing it in the retail market, right? I mean, we have a company, Shift Gold, and our sales are picking up. We're actually getting a lot of sales. And in fact, so are a lot of other gold dealers and all around the country. You know, I bought for myself this morning some more silver uh, rounds, one ounce silver rounds. I wanted to have more of those. And so I bought some this morning. Uh, and I had no problem buying them. I mean, I could lock in the price and I could buy them, but it's going to be two to three months before I can take delivery of my silver. Now, normally, if you were to buy some silver from Shift Gold, you could get delivery the next day or two. I mean, it's, you know, it happens pretty quickly, but the wholesalers don't have any inventory. 
all the silver's gone. They have to wait for the uh, fabricators to produce more, who probably have to wait for the mines uh, to deliver more. So you have this big backlog. And you might think, wait a minute, if so many people are buying silver, how is it that the prices are going down? Well, the people who are buying it are very different from the big institutions who are selling it. And a lot of the silver that's being sold is silver that's in the ETFs and people are selling mining stocks. Uh, and so a lot of the people that are trading or they're trading silver futures, you're talking about people who don't actually own the silver, never had any intention of taking delivery. Uh, and now they're just closing out a position because they have a margin call or they need the cash as opposed to clients of shift gold and other gold dealers around the globe where people are actually buying uh, gold and silver because they want to own it. And so the normal reaction to somebody who buys silver, when you see the price go down, it's like a sale, right? Oh, I could buy more silver uh, for, for my money. So let me buy more. And especially too, and you know, people forget about this. If you have a lot of gold and you don't have a lot of silver, you could use your gold to buy silver. You know, it's now better than 120 ounces of gold. I think the last time I mentioned that on the podcast, I said it was about 104 uh, ounces of silver for one ounce of gold. You can now buy better than 120 ounces of silver for a single ounce of gold. And at the moment, I really can't think of a better thing to spend your gold on than silver, right? Because gold is money and you could use that money to buy yourself some silver. And in fact, you could do that at Shift Gold. If you don't have any silver and you have a bunch of gold, take some of your gold, not all of your gold, but take some of your gold and buy some silver with it, right? Shift Gold will buy back your gold and sell you your silver. Now, you're going to have to wait a while to get it, uh, but I think it's going to be worth the wait. And then you can hold on to that silver. And at some point when uh, the ratio comes in and maybe it's 50 to 1 or 20 to 1, right? If, it re if silver really makes a move, you could sell your silver and get your gold back, except you'll end up getting a lot more gold than you spent to buy the silver. Maybe when you, when you buy your silver, it, it costs you one ounce of gold to buy it. And by the time you sell it, you get four or five ounces of gold back, right? Because you want to keep track of your gold, right? You want to you add to or accumulate ounces of gold. And maybe converting some of your gold to silver right now in the long run will allow you to have more gold. You know, the only problem with that is, of course, the tax man, depending on where you live, uh, what your taxes may or may not be when you make those, uh, those exchanges. But I think what's happening in the real market is a better indication of what's going to happen to the price of gold and silver than what's happening in the paper market, what's happening in markets uh, that really have their own set of fundamentals and where in the short run, you have a lot of noise. And a lot of that too, I think, is coming from the big moves that we're seeing in the foreign exchange markets. I mean, obviously this has to do with a scramble for short-term liquidity, dollar liquidity. You know, I was watching last night as the Australian dollar plunged by better than 4%. Uh, you know, it was just getting obliterated. It was down, you know, below 55 cents to the US dollar. I mean, we haven't seen the Aussie dollar this cheap, I think since the bottoms during the 08 financial crisis. Uh, and we were way down there, New Zealand dollar too, down about the same percentage. And then at one point this morning, not only did the Australian dollar recover the entire decline, but it was actually up two and a half percent. So about a six and a half percent intraday swing in the Australian dollar. As I'm 
you know, recording this now, it's kind of unchanged uh, based on where it was uh, the day before, but unprecedented real overnight volatility, or I mean, it probably happened back in 08, but I mean, we don't see this kind of moves in the foreign exchange markets. And then this morning, the dollar just went on a tear against the euro, the Swiss franc, the Japanese yen. Dollar was up about 2% pretty much against most of those currencies. Dollar index closed up about 1.6, which is, you know, a 1.6% move. That's a big move. We closed at 102.78. So this is the highest the dollar index has been in some time. Now, you might think, wait a minute. I mean, we're printing all these dollars. I mean, trillions and trillions of dollars are about to be created out of thin air. Uh, Why are those dollars now more valuable? But again, in the short run, none of those long-term fundamentals matter. Right now, people are scrambling to get dollars, and so they're, they're paying up for them. You know, the volatility also is going on in the Treasury bond market, that bond bubble that I talked about bursting. Uh, it's beginning to look more and more like uh, that forecast is going to end up being correct. Yesterday, the yield on the 30-year government bond got all the way back up to 1.9%. Now, that's not a very high yield, but compared to where it was at the lows, Uh, that's a big move. And the yield on the 10-year was above 1.2. As I'm recording now, uh, we're at 1.78 on the 30-year. So we had a bit of a rally in the bonds today coming off of Wednesday's drubbing. Uh, And the 10-year now is about 1.14. But still, yields are backing up. And again, it's not just in the treasury market. It's in the corporate bond market. It's in the muni bond market. That's despite the Federal Reserve's now doing quantitative easing and in those markets. But going from the sublime to the ridiculous, where things really get absurd is at the short end of the curve, right? Because if you look at the yield on three-month Treasury bills, it's now negative. The yield is negative 0.03%. So that means that if you buy a three-month Treasury bill and then you wait three months to get your money back, you're going to get back a little less than you than you loaned so what is the point of doing it right i mean you're going to get back less than you started with just leave it in cash but people are buying these bills with a negative yield now the six month bill it's not negative but it's zero and you have to tie your money up for six whole months i mean what's the point of doing that hey i'm going to lend the government my money for six months and then they're going to give me back the exact same amount of money six months later. Then why make the loan, right? This is the absurdity of negative percent rates or zero percent rates. Even though it looks ridiculous that somebody would make this money available, they're doing it. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build chime feels like progress the chime credit builder visa credit card is issued by the Bancorp bank na or stride bank na members fdic out of network atm withdrawal and otc advance fees may apply terms and conditions apply go to chime.com disclosures for details traffic jams tailgating pile-ups oh the joys of driving how could it get worse the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive that's right The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Of course, as long as this is possible, as long as the government can borrow at no cost or negative cost, right? Donald Trump got his wish. He wished for negative rates. Here they are, negative three bill rates. So the government can finance some of its deficits now. It can sell bills and it's getting paid to borrow. And obviously when this is happening, this makes a lot of this debt seem viable except nothing that can't go on forever will go on forever. And what happens when these yields really start to spike? Because eventually that's exactly what's going to happen. And in fact, most recently, uh, the Federal Reserve announced that it has now got a special facility to bail out money markets. Because without the Federal Reserve bailing out the money markets, a lot of these money market accounts would actually break the buck. And what that means is, you know, when people have a money market account, they expect that the money market account is worth $1 every day. So if you put $10,000 into a money market, most people think that they always will have 10,000, that they're not taking any risk and that their balance could never change, like, like a bank account. Well, it's not because you have all sorts of securities in there that could lose value and would be losing value if it wasn't for the Fed. Now imagine what would happen if you know somebody opens up their statement one morning for their money market or they, they go online and they have ten thousand dollars and then they look and they don't have ten thousand they have ninety eight hundred they lost two hundred dollars uh, a lot of people would be very concerned about the fact that they just lost two hundred dollars which considering how little the interest rate is on a money market that could be a couple of years worth of interest and people might think what am i doing why do i have my money in this money market if i could lose money and i'm barely getting any interest let me just sell the money market and go to cash well imagine if everybody did that at the same time well the money markets would have to start unloading all these securities which would just fuel the fire you'd have a run on the money market so now the fed is doing this the last time they did this was in 2008 you know, of course, the media still wants to pretend that this isn't a financial crisis, except everything that the Fed did during the financial crisis, they're doing now, only they're doing it bigger. Because in reality, this is a much bigger financial crisis. Because whenever you're a highly leveraged economy, right, anything becomes a financial crisis. The financial crisis of 2008 was because uh, people were defaulting on their mortgages. And then that rippled through the banking system. Well, more people are defaulting now. We are having bigger defaults industry-wide uh, than we had in, in 2008. In fact, I did a podcast not too long ago about uh, the bailouts because I saw Trump's speech. And in his speech, uh, he was asked whether or not he would support a bailout for um, the airlines. And he said, well, you know, probably they haven't asked me, but if they asked me, you know, sure. Am I, it's an important industry. We need that industry. And then, you know, I titled that podcast bailout spreads nationwide because basically it looked like the president was uh, making an open invitation that anybody who wanted a bailout should just ask and they would get one. And I said, okay, well, this is going to be a run on bailouts. And sure enough, you know, everybody wants a bailout. I mean, it's not just the airlines and Boeing that wants a bailout, but the cruise liners want bailouts. 
The hotels want bailouts. The restaurants want bailouts. You know, even now the movie theaters, right? All of these industries have come together and they have, you know, representatives or lobbyists that are going to Washington making their case why they need to be bailed out, right? Because any industry that is closing down, right, places where the public gathers, right, all of these uh, companies want to be bailed out. And of course, why shouldn't they? I mean, if everybody else is getting bailed out, why not get your piece of the action? And the last I heard this afternoon, I think the price tag for the bailouts that they were already contemplating was about $1.3 trillion. I mean, and, and and the clock is still ticking. I mean, every company is going to get a bailout. And of course, how do we know how long this whole thing is going to last? Right. I mean, how many bailouts are they going to need? How long is the nation going to be on lockdown or shutdown? I mean, I don't know. Right. I mean, and what if the coronavirus doesn't go away? I mean, we mean, and then what if it does go away and then it comes back? What if it's here, you know, seasonally every winter and we have to keep closing down? I mean, we're going to continuously provide bailouts to all of these companies. I mean, this is where we're going. And I think right now, because the knee-jerk reaction to the dollar is that it's going up, you know, people think that, oh, I guess we can keep creating dollars, right? We can print as many as we want. Look, they're getting more valuable. We've been printing them up and printing them up. And look, the dollar is buying more and more, right? Uh, They have no idea what ultimately is going to happen when the dollar comes crashing down. You know, the, the fact that everybody thinks Uh, that the bailouts and quantitative easing worked uh, when the Fed did it and the government did it in 2008. This basically created a real moral hazard and a real problem because now everybody thinks that that's the correct policy. People forget that it was supposed to be temporary, right? They have short memories. uh, And the Fed was supposed to be able to shrink its balance sheet and normalize interest rates. I mean, you know, obviously they never were able to achieve anything that they promised. And Ben Bernanke was, in fact, monetizing debt. I mean, if you didn't know that when he denied it on Capitol Hill, you got to know it now. That's what he was doing. But people just think that there's no negative consequence because they think it worked, right? We had the longest recovery ever. We had the longest uh, bull market ever, right? A record-breaking bull market. And that was because we did the bailouts and we did the quantitative easing. And so now we can just do even bigger bailouts. We can do even more quantitative easing because if it worked back then, then doing even more of it now should work even better, except it won't. Because again, the reason it worked the first time is because of the fact that everybody believed it was temporary. Everybody believed that there was an end and they could reverse policy. Nobody is going to believe that now, right? So The moral hazards were not only that we bailed everybody out, which means that everybody expected to get bailed out again, right? Had we let some of the industries fail in 2008 and had not set that precedent, then we wouldn't be bailing out so many industries now. But if the government and the Fed didn't have so much false confidence that they could do it again because it worked last time, and so now they're really cranking it up to do it on an even bigger scale just because they could take the balance sheet from you know under a trillion to four and a half trillion doesn't mean they can take it from four and a half trillion to 10 trillion or 20 trillion right just because the government could take the national debt from 
eight trillion to twenty-three trillion doesn't mean they can take it from twenty-three trillion to fifty trillion or sixty trillion, right? I mean, we can't do that. We can't have the national debt be two to three times the value of GDP. And, and you get you got to think about what else is going on at the same time because when we did quantitative easing the first time, not only was the Federal Reserve buying U.S. Treasuries. But, you know, U.S. Treasuries were being bought all around the world. The Japanese, the Chinese, the Saudis, right? Everybody was loading up on U.S. Treasuries back then. That's not going to happen now. See, the whole world is in trouble, right? The whole world has the coronavirus and everybody is putting people on lockdown and businesses are shutting down. And other countries are also trying to stimulate their economies and, and bail out their economies. So what's going to happen is all these countries that are sitting on piles of U.S. treasuries, right? They're going to be cashing in those IOUs or just not rolling them over, right? When their short-term treasuries expire, uh, they're going to need the money, right? They need the money for their own economies. They don't, they don't want to lend the money to us. They need the money themselves, right? They, they had surpluses in the past, but now there's this emergency. So the Japanese, instead of rolling over treasuries, will just let them mature, same thing with uh, the Chinese or everybody else. The Saudis obviously don't need as many treasuries. They don't have big surpluses anymore with $25 oil. By the way, oil, I think, had a record-breaking day today as far as percentage gain. At one point, I saw it up about $6 a barrel. But that's because we were coming off of uh, yesterday's collapse where oil was around $20 a barrel. So today, we closed up 482 at 2562 but we, we got as high as actually 28 at one point. So it was even higher than I thought. Uh, yesterday, it closed at like 20 and a half. So even though it's a huge percentage gain, you know, you're still only talking about 25 and a half dollar oil approximately. So, you know, OPEC nations are not going to have a bunch of money uh, to loan to the U.S. government with oil prices this low. So all of these other countries are going to be sellers of U.S. treasuries and in addition to monetizing the massive deficits in the United States to pay for all the bailouts and the stimulus, they're going to have to monetize that. But there's going to be another big seller of U.S. Treasuries that's going to compete uh, with the government and foreign countries, and that's the Social Security trust funds, you know, quote unquote trust funds. I mean, they're not really trust funds, uh, but the Social Security funds own trillions of dollars worth of U.S. treasuries. And right now, even before, rather, the coronavirus, when everybody was still working, the Social Security was running at a slight deficit, meaning they weren't quite collecting enough in payroll taxes to cover the cost of current Social Security benefits. So the trust funds were dragging down a little bit. But now they're about to implode because the government is going to collect a lot less in payroll taxes when the unemployment rate spikes up. I don't know how high it's going to get. It can easily get to 10%. It can go much higher than that. Uh, and so a lot of people are going to be filing unemployment claims. And so when people are unemployed and they're not working, they are not contributing to the Social Security uh, system. And so in order for the Social Security trust funds to have the money to send out to the current recipients, they're going to be selling U.S. Treasuries, or they're not going to be rolling over the treasuries they have because they need the cash. You know, we did get the uh, 
weekly unemployment claims that came out earlier today. We had a spike of about 70,000 for the week. Uh, right now, we're at 281,000 claims. But I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. I think we're going to see much, much bigger uh, increases. And I just read an article last week that in three days uh, during the week, I think Connecticut alone, during three days, there were 20,000 uh, new unemployment claims filed. And Connecticut's a small state, and that was just three days. Uh, and so these numbers are clearly going to get much, much bigger. But they're also talking about payroll tax holidays or payroll tax cuts. And I'm pretty sure, you know, we're going to get that. As I said in an earlier podcast, this is going to be an auction for whoever can give away the most free stuff. This is an election year. Donald Trump is now behind in the polls. He's, you know, not the favorite anymore. He was the favorite. He's now the underdog. And, you know, so he's got to try to buy himself another term uh, by giving away as much stuff as he can. You know, Congress is working on a new stimulus now. By the way, uh, the president just signed and obviously the Senate passed uh, the first relief bill, a horrible bill, which has within it the mandatory leave. There is a permanent leave now. All U.S. businesses that have fewer than 500 employees will have to provide every one of their workers with two weeks of paid vacation where they get 100%, not paid vacation, rather, paid sick leave, where they get 100% of their salary. And obviously, since people are required Uh, employers are required to provide it whether the employee wants it or not every employee is going to take his two weeks off right he's going to be sick and he's going to want uh the the money because otherwise you don't get it right and since it's already baked into your employment because now when people get hired employers are going to know that they're going to have to give their workers two weeks paid sick leave they're going to have to have a lower base pay to cover that cost and so every worker is going to take the two weeks off, whether he's sick or not, right? Who knows? I mean, because otherwise you're, you're just, you're just throwing away your money. So I think it's really just two weeks of paid vacations. I mean, maybe you get sick uh, and maybe you don't. I mean, there are probably people that are pretty healthy that don't get sick that often that don't need uh, two weeks. And I'm sure a lot of people can stagger them. I think a lot of people are going to be using their sick days uh, you know, on Monday mornings, you know, because they just want three-day weekends or Fridays because they want a three-day weekend on that side. I mean, that's what people are going to do. But, you know, this simply increases the cost, right? It's just another employment cost. It's another obstacle, another barrier to entry, another reason to hire fewer employees or to not hire any employees at all. And also what is in this bill uh, is the family leave where you get up to three months with two-thirds of your pay, uh, you know, just because your kid is not in school and you want to stay home and take care of them, well, now you could do that uh, for two-thirds of your pay, which for a lot of people is a pretty good deal, uh, especially if they had, you know, transportation costs to get back and forth to work and they were eating uh, lunch in a restaurant. It's cheaper maybe to have it at home. So to get two-thirds of your salary but never have to leave your house, a lot of people uh, prefer that to work anyway, especially if they you know, have a mundane job that they, they really don't like doing and they're just constantly waiting for, uh, you know, quitting time. Uh, so, but this again, this is another burden. Small business owners are going to have to cover these costs and they may not have the ability to do that. So this, this is not a, a good bill. I'm surprised that uh, so few Republicans voted against it. No Democrats voted against it. That doesn't surprise me. Uh, you only had, I think, eight Republicans Uh, that voted against the bill. And of course, the president signed the bill. Uh, And again, he talks about deregulation. He wants deregulation. Well, this is a regulation, 
right? This is the government telling businesses how they have to compensate their employees. You must pay your employees uh, for two weeks of sick leave, whether you want to or they want to. We don't care about your own, uh, you know, deal that you make. You know, we're going to get in between the, the employer and the employee, and we're going to dictate that this is something that you need to, to offer. And I'm sure that they're just going to increase this. I'm sure there's a lot more mandates that are going to be added on uh, during this crisis. As I said, you know, the government never raised the crisis, and this is a crisis. I mean, Donald Trump says he's a wartime president, and this is a war. And yeah, and you know, my father used to tell me all the time, America lost every war that it ever fought. And the reason that we lost every war is because we ended the war with less freedom than when the war started, because the government takes advantage of the wartime environment to pass legislation that increases the size of government and increases taxes that during peacetime they could never pass. But once you're at war, then you pretty much get away with anything. I mean, I don't think any of the Republicans who voted for this mandatory paid leave, I don't think they would have voted it for it, but for the coronavirus. But once we have the coronavirus and there's an emergency and now so many Americans you know, are not at work and so many people would immediately see a check because remember, this is being imposed now retroactively. So employers and employees didn't know about this when they started their relationship. So it wasn't negotiated as part of the salary. And so now all of a sudden the government comes in and mandates something. And in fact, you even get paid retroactively. If you were staying home and taking care of your kids for the last week or two, uh, well, now you're going to get paid. Even if you weren't going to get paid before, you're going you know, you get, to get paid now. So I think in this environment, principle goes out the window. So it doesn't matter if you're a conservative or a libertarian. What matters is you don't want to be the guy who's against this. People are afraid to stand up. Just like you know, when they passed the Patriot Act, nobody wanted to vote against the Patriot Act after 9-11, even though it was probably the most unpatriotic piece of legislation ever created. Nobody had the guts to stand up and say so because of the environment that we were in. I mentioned, you know, the World War II victory tax, the withholding tax. There is no way that during peacetime, any politician would have voted to withhold income taxes from people's pay, right? Especially when fewer than 3% of the people were paying the tax and then they jack it up to 30% and they said, oh, by the way, we're going to take the income tax right out of your paycheck before you even see the money. There's no way they could have done that during peacetime. But when you're at war and you're fighting Japan and the Nazis, you know, and, and you're at home, right, and you're working, you're not, you know, on the front fighting, and the government says, hey, we need to take some money out of your paycheck so we can, you know, support the troops. Nobody's going to object to that. Not during a war. They never would have allowed it during peacetime. So the government took advantage of the war to increase taxes that they never could have done during peacetime. And then, of course, when the war was over, well, you know, they never surrendered that power. They never repealed that tax because they never want to give up power after they grab it, right? They just constantly build on it and build on it. And so they're going to be uh, building on a lot of stuff during this coronavirus crisis. But, you know, I think the most ridiculous aspect of uh, yesterday's, uh, you know, collapse in the stock market, you know, I'm watching on CNBC and they have like one big guest after another, you know, real big people in the industry. You know, they got Mark Cuban on there. Um, 
Andy Ross Sorkin was talking about stuff. Sandy Weil was on. You know, a lot of these guys are doing interviews via Skype, and so he was held up in his vacation house somewhere. But probably the biggest one was Bill Ackman, you know, Pershing Square, hedge fund manager. And, you know, everybody has an idea, right? Everybody has advice on what the government should do. And all of it is wrong. But the most amazing thing about it is that nobody sees the consequences. I mean, Bill Ackman was very upfront about his concerns about what's going to happen to the economy, about all these companies going bankrupt. I think he specified Hilton Hotels, but a lot of companies are going to go bankrupt if they don't get bailed out. And so therefore, we need to bail them out. And it doesn't really occur to him the reason that all of these companies are on the verge of bankruptcy is because they have so much debt. And the only reason they have so much debt is because of the Fed policy that he wants to continue. And if we bail them out, we again establish or reinforce the precedent that if you fail, you're going to get bailed out. And, you know, I know just by listening to what we're having, you know, listen to what the president is saying, you have the Democrats controlling Congress and all of these bailouts are going to be disastrous for the companies that get bailed out because they're going to have to agree to uh, conditions that are going to make them uncompetitive and inefficient and basically make them permanent wards of the of the state. Uh, the politicians are saying that they don't want to bail out management or the shareholders. They really just want to bail out the workers. And so they want to make sure that in the future, these companies operate for the benefit of the workers, really, not the shareholders. So what's the point of, of bailing them out if they become socialist cooperatives, you know, run for the workers? I mean, this is going to be a complete disaster. As I said on the other podcast, it's much better to let these companies go bankrupt. Now, people want to pretend that if the companies go bankrupt, uh, that the industries are going to disappear, right? Donald Trump is like, you know, the hotel industries, the casinos, uh, the airlines, the cruise industry. These are important industries. We can't just let them go. They're not going to go away. You think those cruise ships are going to disappear if the cruise ship companies go bankrupt? No, those cruise ships are still going to be there, except they're going to change ownership. You're going to have new management, new shareholders in place to run the businesses. The hotels aren't going anywhere. The casinos aren't going anywhere. They're already there. They've already been built. You see, what happens if we allow the bankruptcies is investors like Ackman and a lot of other people are going to lose money. That's what they're concerned about. It's not that the industries are going to go away. It's that the people that overpaid for the stocks or who loaned the companies too much money, they're going to lose. They're going to suffer losses. So all these guys are really talking their own book. They want to bail out for themselves. It's not a bailout for the consumer. The consumer is going to get a better deal if we let these companies go bankrupt. Because if we let them go bankrupt, all the debt is gone. And if these companies can operate without debt, well, they can charge lower prices. They can offer a better service. You know, if they're bogged down with debt or now they end up getting bailed out by the government and now the government is calling the shots, the government is micromanaging these companies, the service is going to stink. The consumers will be better served. The people who fly on the planes, stay in the hotels, go to the movie theaters, right? All of the consumers will be better off 
if all of these companies go bankrupt. Now, what about the workers, right? Because people keep saying, well, we care about the workers. We care about the people who work in the hotels and we care about the people who work in the casinos and the movie theaters. Look, the new owners are going to have to hire somebody. They can't run the, the casinos by themselves. They still need dealers. They still need, you know, waitresses, right? I mean, they, all the people still have jobs. Now, maybe not all of them. Maybe the businesses are going to have to get a little leaner. They're going to have to scale back and maybe they're going to have to lay off some people. But in the long run, they're going to lay off a lot more people if the government is in charge and makes them un uncompetitive and inefficient and eventually drives them out of business completely in the future. So it's actually better for the workers as far as the number of jobs that are ultimately you know, maintained. And it's 100% better for the customers if we allow a bankruptcy and a restructuring. And of course, it's not like during the bankruptcy, the planes aren't going to fly and the hotels aren't going to be open. They will be open. You know, behind the scenes, the ownership will be changing hands but they're not going to shut these things down. You know, I mean, so this is all financial. In fact, there was one guy, I saw him on CNBC, and this was, you know, probably about a week or two ago. It's not even recent. And this guy was talking about while well, the Fed needs to bail, uh, bail out uh, Wall Street. And this is before they actually announced the bailouts. And he specifically said this, and I, I couldn't even believe I was hearing this, but he said that, you know, the Fed needs to provide liquidity to hedge funds. Because he said that, you know, hedge funds like to lever up. They like to borrow a lot of money to increase their returns. They like to make bets, but they want to do it on leverage. And the credit markets are kind of seizing up. And so it's harder for hedge funds to borrow the money that they need uh, to lever up their portfolio to try to make uh, bigger profits. And so the Federal Reserve should, uh, you know, provide the liquidity to these hedge funds. And I couldn't believe it. So basically, this guy is saying that you have billionaires who are running hedge funds for their millionaire clients, and the government should step up and loan them money to gamble with so that they could make more money gambling with the cheap money that they got for the Federal Reserve. I mean, I couldn't believe that. And of course, the guy on CBC that he was talking to, he didn't think there was anything wrong with that. Oh, sure, no problem. So all of this, don't believe all this nonsense about the bailouts being good for the economy, the bailouts being good for workers, the bailouts being good uh, for the consumers. They're not. They're only good for the investors who should have lost and the incompetent management teams that should have been replaced. That is all that is getting bailed out. Now, I know, you know, now we're hearing uh, some of the people on Capitol Hill, right, the Democrats in particular, hey, we don't want to bail out Boeing. Right. They levered up and they bought back stock. And now now because they spent all that money buying back stock, now they need a bailout. Right. And they forget that nobody would have bought back stock if the Fed hadn't kept interest rates so low. And of course, the whole time they were buying back stock, Donald Trump was cheerleading it. Hey, a new high in the Dow, new high in the Dow. Look how much you're making. Right. Why was that happening? It was happening because of all these buybacks. Right. It wasn't the earnings going up that was driving stock prices. So now they want to say, oh, you did all that, and now we're going to bail you out. One of the other things that they're talking about now, in exchange for the bailout money, that the government is going to get equity in these companies, right? So the government is basically taking ownership of a piece of the companies. They're going to have seats on the board, and they're going to be instrumental in running these companies, which means that anybody who owns any of the companies— Right. If you're a stockholder in any of the companies that gets bailed out, you got to sell 
because that company is no longer going to be managed with your interest at heart. These are not going to be profit maximizing companies. They're going to be wage maximizing companies, right? Benefit maximizing companies, which means they're going to eventually be bankrupt companies. Because if you don't watch your costs, you're not going to succeed, especially if they have competitors who are being run uh, with a profit motive, who are managed uh, by people who are cost conscious and who are trying to deliver uh, a quality product. Because remember, the reason that businesses try to limit their costs is because their consumers demand the lowest price and they shop around. So if you have an, a company that's been bailed out by the government and now the government is calling the shots and preventing them from you know, reducing labor costs or, or things like that, but their competitors are able to do it and now they're able to undercut them, the bailed out companies are gonna continuously lose market share to the non-bailed out companies. But then if the bailed out companies are prohibited from reducing their workforce, even as their sales are falling and they're losing market share, that's just gonna accelerate their bankruptcy and then another bailout and then the government takes a bigger chunk of the ownership until eventually the government owns the entire company and it's basically like a socialist communist revolution except no one had to fire a shot. But you know, probably the most ridiculous thing about yesterday's coverage is I've never heard the word helicopter money more than I heard it yesterday. Pretty much every guest that was coming on was saying, we need helicopter money. It's time for helicopter money, right? We need the helicopter money. We need a, you know, everybody talk about helicopter money. Now, a lot of these people probably don't even know where the term helicopter money is. I mean, they just think about, oh yeah, we're dropping uh, money from helicopters, helicopter money. So the, the, the term was originally coined by Milton Friedman, right? Chicago school, monetarist. And when he said helicopter money, right? Dropping money from helicopters, he said it as a joke. He was using the analogy to illustrate a point. See, he was trying to explain why printing money doesn't work, why, why Keynesian monetary stimulus is ineffective, right? By just creating money. Because remember, money in and of itself doesn't have any value. I mean, not paper money, fiat currency. What gives it value is the goods and services that the people who earn the money produced, right? So it's the goods and services that have value, not the money, right? Without stuff to buy, the money has no value. Once you introduce stuff, right? Once you produce goods and services, now you got something to buy. And so the money is the way we allocate the goods and services. And the people who are adding the most value, the people who are contributing the most services and the most goods are earning the most money, right? So your money uh, is a function of how much you put in, right? If you start a business and that business produces all sorts of goods that people can buy, then you're, you earn money, right? And so, you know, there, 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 there's some relationship between what you put in in the way of goods and services and then your claim to those goods and services based on the money that you have. But if you just create money and there's no extra goods or services, then the only thing that happens is the price of those goods and services has to go up because now there's more money bidding for them, right? That's all there is. So Milton Friedman's entire point was to say, look, you know, monetary stimulus 
is no different than dropping money from helicopters. It's absurd. It doesn't work. That's why he used the analogy to point out the absurdity of it. Because people would have thought, oh yeah, dropping money from helicopters, yeah, that's clearly dumb, right? There's no point in doing that. I mean, any idiot can see that if you just drop money from helicopters, it's just inflation, right? That's why he used it to kind of prove a point and to illustrate the absurdity of Keynesian monetary stimulus, right? Well, now the guys who are using the word today, they think that it's a real policy. They just think whoever made it up, if they even know that it was Milton Friedman, was serious. That, oh, okay, it's time for helicopter money as if helicopter money actually works. It doesn't work. It's a joke. (laughs) But the joke's going to be on everybody who thinks it does work because we are going to have a currency crisis. We're going to have a dollar crisis. Yes, right now we have a liquidity crisis and people are rushing into dollars. Uh, They're not thinking this out. They're not like connecting the dots to what's going to happen to the dollar eventually. Uh, All they know is they need dollars now. But in short order, I'm not sure how many weeks or months it's going to be, but nobody is going to need dollars. The world is going to be drowning in a sea of dollars and you're going to have a dollar crisis. I think the crisis is going to begin in the foreign exchange markets uh, as uh, foreigners lose confidence. You can't be the reserve currency and be monetizing your debt to the extent that we're monetizing our debt. Uh, So the dollar is going to start to fall and then it's going to snowball and then it's going to come here and consumer prices are really going to start to rise. And by then it's too late to do anything about it. Uh, So my advice is to protect yourself now. Take advantage of the people who are buying the dollar, either because they don't know any better or they don't have a choice and get out of your dollars, uh, get more gold, get more gold stocks and buy these foreign stocks on the cheap. You know, uh, you know, I think that we are getting some of the greatest buying opportunities in the foreign markets, not in the U.S. market. Uh, this rally in the U.S. market, as I said, I thought we might get one with all the bailouts and all the stimulus and all the hope. Uh, you know, th- this is this is a this is a bear trap. This is a sucker rally that's going on in the U.S. market. We have another leg down. But in the final analysis, it doesn't matter because this is an ongoing bear market. 21 years in the making, 70% decline, as I said, in terms of gold. And we got a long way to go to the bottom.